Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for the resurrection. Thank you for being alive. You're the living God. You're the risen Savior. You're our King. And now, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would come and do a work in our hearts to transform us to be more like Jesus. That you would take what is said this morning from just a mere man, a weak man. Lord, I don't want people to hear my words. We need to hear from you this morning, God. We want to hear God's words. So would you speak to us this morning, Father, through your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated this morning. If you're a child in fifth grade and below, you may leave now for Children's Church. The rest of you can turn to Hebrews chapter 11 as our children are leaving. We do want to extend a welcome to our friend uh, Leo, friends of Russell and Yo Lambrecht. And I guess Leo just came back from Afghanistan. So um, welcome back to America and for serving us faithfully over there. So thank you for that. Leo. I don't know if you've ever heard of the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel, but it is important that you know what that movement means, and I want to show you a video of one pastor's opinion of that movement. I don't know what you feel about the prosperity gospel, the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel, but I'll tell you what I feel about it. Hate. It is not the gospel. And it's being exported from this country to Africa and Asia, selling a bill of goods to the poorest of the poor. Believe this message. Your pigs won't die. Your wife won't have miscarriages. You have rings on your fingers and coats on your back. That's coming out of America. The people that ought to be giving our money and our time and our lives Instead, selling them a bunch of crap called gospel. And here's the reason it is so horrible. When was the last time that any American, African, Asian ever said, Jesus is all satisfying because you drove a BMW? Never. They'll say, Jesus give you that? Yeah, well, I'll take Jesus. That's idolatry. That's not the gospel. That's elevating gifts above giver. I'll tell you what makes Jesus look beautiful is when you smash your car and your little girl goes flying through the windshield and lands like dead on the street. And you say... Through the deepest possible pain, God is enough. God is enough. He is good. He will take care of us. He will satisfy us. He will get us through this. He is our treasure. Whom have I in heaven but you and on earth? There's nothing that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart, my little girl may fail, but you are the strength of my heart and my portion forever. That makes God look. 
as God, not as giver of cars or safety or health. Oh, how I pray that America would be purged of the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel and that the Christian church would be marked by suffering for Christ. God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in Him in the midst of loss, not prosperity. And I want to... And I want to say, John Piper, tell us what you really think about that. You see, we live in a culture that screams very loudly that it's all about power, it's about prosperity, it's about popularity. And the evangelical world is even seduced by the sirens of our age. We're seduced by the spirit of our age that the Christian life is about power It's about prosperity. It's about popularity. For example, most television preachers that you look at will tell you that if you just give money to their ministry, if you just sow seeds into their ministry, you will get a BMW. You will get that Cadillac. You will get that million-dollar house. You you will get all these things that will make you happy. And what's shameful is that these televangelists are actually preying upon people who are poor that need help. Is there anything wrong with money? No. No. Is there anything wrong with prosperity? No. Is there anything wrong with having wealth? No. But when you elevate it above God and you have it as an idol, it becomes a very sinful thing. In addition to prosperity, we want popularity, don't we? Everyone wants to live in the limelight. Who doesn't want to have their 15 minutes of fame? Our culture worships movie stars, actors, sports athletes, Everybody that's on media, we worship as a culture. And what really counts, what we're, heard, what we're hearing is, you've got to be popular at all costs. It doesn't matter what you have to do. It doesn't matter if you have to sacrifice your morals, your values, your convictions. You just need to be liked. You need to be popular. That's what we're told. Or what about power? If it's not prosperity, if it's not popularity, what about power? Isn't power the ultimate opiate? I mean, we just came off a national election. And regardless of which way you believe the election went, it's all about power, right? Who has power? Who has influence? We want to climb the corporate ladder of success so that we can embrace this American dream of having prosperity, popularity, and power. And if we're not careful, everything that we live for in this world means that we're gluttons upon what this world has to offer us. Prosperity, power, popularity. And yet as we've been studying these Old Testament saints, what do we find out about them in Hebrews 11? They longed for a better country, didn't they? A heavenly one. They longed for heaven. Things not yet seen. Having their eyes fixed on Jesus. Being willing to, per, to, to, to pursue Him above all costs. To abandon everything to obey and live for. Jesus. And you see, the Christian life is not marked by power, popularity, and prosperity. As a matter of fact, the the true Christian life is marked by weakness, by suffering, sometimes by persecution. What does Jesus tell us? Pick up our cross, deny self, and do what? Follow Him. True Christianity means we find our satisfaction in Christ alone. We sing the words of the song, all I have is Christ, Jesus, is my life. Leonard Ravenhill has said this. 
He said the New Testament church did not depend on a moral majority, but rather on a holy minority. The church right now has more fashion than passion, is more pathetic than prophetic, is more superficial than supernatural. The church that the apostles ministered in was a suffering church. Today we have a sufficient church. Events in the spirit-controlled church were amazing. This day the church is often just amusing. The New Testament church was identified with persecutions, prisons, and poverty. Today many of us are identified with prosperity, popularity, and personalities. And as we began to see last week in the life of Isaac, true faith comes out when you're faced with death. When death is at your door, when you are in the throes of death, when death is intimate, what you, what you truly believe, what your theology is, what's in your heart of hearts often comes out. And last week we saw Isaac. Isaac tried to thwart God's sovereign purposes. And what did he learn at the end of his life? God always wins in the end. You can't stop a sovereign God. And so this morning, we're going to turn our attention to Isaac's son, Jacob, and his grandson, Joseph. And we're going to continue to look in Hebrews chapter 11 and look at these two individuals and the faith that they demonstrated when death was knocking at their door. When they were in their final hours. What did they demonstrate that showed true, authentic faith? So let's look together at Hebrews chapter 11. We're actually going to start in verse 20 so we can just kind of bring it all together with what we looked at last week with Isaac. But Hebrews 11 verse 20. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. Verse 21. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. Now, what in the world does this mean? We're going to try to figure it out together, okay? Are you ready? We see the faith of Jacob in verse 21. And it talks about when he's dying, he blesses the sons of Joseph. Now, at first glance, this may seem a little confusing. I mean, of all the stories to illustrate in the life of Jacob, why pick this one event? I mean, why focus on, on Jacob blessing his sons? And it says here, when he was dying, by faith, when dying, he blessed his sons, Joseph's sons. Now, we're going to have to go back and look at the life of Jacob. Because if we just look at this one snapshot at the end of his life, we don't get the full picture. What's the full picture of Jacob's life? Here's the big issue for this morning. Number one, here's the big point. There's two points, one about Jacob, one about Joseph. Here's the, here's the issue about Jacob. True faith, true faith is evidenced by a transformed life that rests in the sovereignty of God. In God's sovereign grace, a transformed life. And so we have to go back and say, well, how was Jacob's life transformed by God's grace? If you go back and read Genesis, you realize that Jacob was a man that was seduced by power, he was seduced by popularity, he was seduced by prosperity. That's who he was. We learn from Genesis chapter 25 that Jacob and Esau, the twins, are born. And who comes out first? Esau. And what is Jacob doing? He's holding his what? His heel. It means that Jacob is a heel grabber. He's a deceiver. He's a shyster. He's a conniver. He's a trickster. He's a con man. That's what his name means, deceiver. You remember the story last week? Does, does Jacob live up to his name? What happened last week we looked at? This whole big scheme to trick Isaac out of giving the blessing to Esau and giving it to Jacob. 
And just moments in the text, right after it talks about Jacob and Esau being born, what we find out is that Jacob, the very first thing he does, he tricks his brother Esau. He tricks his brother Esau into giving him the birthright. Now, what was the birthright? The birthright was basically the right to be the firstborn son, the right to carry on the family name, the right to the inheritance, the right to have this this privileged position. And so from the very beginning of Jacob's life, he tricks Esau and says, Esau, give me prosperity, give me popularity, give me power. My name is Jacob. I am a heel-grabbing deceiver. I am a trickster. I am going to try to fool you. I want power. I want your privilege. I want what you've got. So Jacob, from the very beginning, is manipulating. He's scheming. He is a deceiver. He's living up to his name. Now, if you read the rest of the story of Jacob, what do you find out? Does it get any better? Well, after what happens with Jacob and Esau, he has to flee. He has to flee to another country. He goes and he lives with his uncle Laban. And what happens when when Jacob goes and lives with his uncle Laban? What happens? He falls in love with Rachel. And if you read the story, it's almost as if Rachel becomes an ungodly obsession for Jacob. She is his idol. He is smitten with Rachel. Everything is about Rachel. And if you study the life of Jacob, it's interesting what he doesn't talk about. Jacob rarely talks about God. When he talks about God, know what he says? He says, it's your God, your God. Your God. He never says, my God. He never has that personal relationship with God. He's a trickster. And he tricks Laban. He tricked Esau. He tricks Laban. He he, he leaves Laban's family with the two daughters, with all the possessions. And so, so what you have here is a picture of a man whose name is heel grabber, a man who's a deceiver, a man who will go to any lengths to protect his backside in order to gain for himself power, prosperity, and popularity. That's what he lived for. That was Jacob's identity. I want everything this world has to offer, and I'm going to go to any lengths to get it, even if it means manipulation, scheming, and treachery, except for one fateful night. All of that changes. This is a mysterious night in Genesis 35... Jacob falls asleep, and he's awakened by a stranger. The Bible says it's the angel of the Lord. And you know the story, right? What does Jacob do? Jacob wrestles with, I believe, Jesus all night. And what does God do through the wrestling of this angel? God touches Jacob's hip socket and knocks it out of of joint, and, and Jacob walks with the limp the rest of his night. He wounds Jacob. But then he, he, he blesses Jacob because Jacob grabs on and says, bless me, bless me. And then what does God do? God changes his name. How does God change his name? His name was what? Jacob, which means what? Deceiver. His name is now changed to Israel, which means the one who wrestles with God. The transformation of Jacob took, took place in an instant. God got a hold of him. God literally grabbed him. God came to him in sovereign grace and said, Jacob, I'm going to transform you right now. Now's the moment. We're going to have a wrestling match, and I'm going to change you in an instant. Oswald Chambers, the man who wrote my utmost for his highest, has said this, Before God can use a man greatly, he must wound him deeply. God wounded Jacob. Jacob was changed in a moment. 
Jacob was the one that was really chosen from the very beginning. Remember, God said from the very beginning, Jacob is going to be the chosen one, not Esau. And Jacob lived his whole life running from that identity. He lived his whole life as one that we would look at and say, this guy's a sinner. This guy's not worth saving. This guy, this guy has nothing to offer God. And in a moment, God comes and saves Jacob, transforms him, changes his name, shows him sovereign grace, irresistibly overcomes all of his resistance and says, I'm going to transform you, Jacob. Ed Clowney says this. I love, I love Ed Clowney. Praise the Lord. He's, he's, he's in heaven now, but um, this is what he said. Jacob's victory was not, of course, a conquest. He had not mastered the angel of God. Lame and helpless, he could only cling to the one who had laid hold of him. His victory was a victory of faith. He did not let go because he could not. God's blessing was all his hope and desire. And listen to this. Faith wins when it knows that all is lost and clings to Christ alone. Faith wins when it knows that all is lost and clings to Christ alone. He ran his hellbound race, didn't he? Trickster, deceiver, shyster, con man, manipulator. Think about the words that we've sung earlier to all I have is Christ. I was once lost in darkest night, yet I thought I knew the way. The sin that promised joy in life had led me to the grave. I had no hope that you would own a rebel to your will. If you had not loved me first, I would refuse you still. But as I ran my hellbound race, indifferent to the cost, you looked upon my helpless state and led me to the cross. And I beheld God's love displayed. You suffered in my place. You bore the wrath reserved for me. Now all I know is grace. Hallelujah. All I have is Christ. Hallelujah. Jesus is my life. And in a moment, that's what happens to Jacob. God gets a hold of him and transforms him. He's no longer a rebel. He's no longer a deceiver. He's a changed, transformed man because God's grace had gotten a hold of him. And the next time we see Jacob show up on the scene is, is many chapters later, back in chapter 46. And if you know the story, Jacob and his brother and his sons have to go down to Egypt because there's a famine. And they go down to Egypt and, and they reconnect with Joseph, his son, who'd been sold into slavery all those many years. And Jacob actually settles in Goshen. It's a part of Egypt. Jacob has left the promised land. He's no longer in the promised land. He's settling down in, in Egypt. And then in, in chapter 48 of Genesis, he's old and sick. He's at the end of his life. He's at, he's at death's door. He's dying. And the writer of Hebrews says that when he was dying, he blessed Joseph's sons. So with one finger in Hebrews, let's turn back like we do each week to Genesis. Next week we'll be in Exodus, but for now we'll, be, we'll finish up these stories in Genesis. Genesis 48. Genesis 48, 10 through 21. Let's see the actual story that the writer tells us about. Genesis 48, 10 through 21. This is what the writer of Hebrews is telling us about this story. Genesis 48, verse 10. Now, the eyes of Israel, and when it's talking about Israel here, it means Jacob, because remember his name's been changed. The eyes of Israel were dim with age, so that he could not see. So Joseph brought them near him, and he kissed them and embraced them. And he said, and Israel said to Joseph, I have never expected to see your face, and behold, God has let me see your offspring also. Then Joseph removed them from his knees, and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. 
And Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand toward Israel's right hand, and brought them near him. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he, and he blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys. And in them let my name be carried on, and the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. Now when Joseph saw that his father had laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. And he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, Not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn. Put your hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He shall become a people, and he shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, By you Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. Then he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I'm about to die, but God be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Now this is a little similar to what we saw last week, right? What's the normal conventional way things work? The older son's supposed to get the blessing, right? The grandfather or the father would bless the older son. The younger son was not as privileged. And so Joseph comes and tries to help out his, his blind dad. He says, okay, we're going to put Manasseh on the right so you can, you can bless Manasseh. We'll put Ephraim on the left so that we can bless him because remember, Manasseh's the firstborn. And what, is, what does Jacob do? He crosses. And Joseph's like, no, that's not what you're supposed to do, Dad. You're old. You're not seeing things right. And what does Jacob say? I know exactly what I'm doing. You see, it's God's sovereign plan that Ephraim is going to be the one blessed above Manasseh. And if you read the rest of the Old Testament, you find out that Ephraim does become a great nation. As a matter of fact, at one point in Israel's history, all the ten tribes are under Ephraim. And Israel is often referred to as Ephraim. And so Jacob, at the end of his life, rested in the conviction. It doesn't pay to wrestle with God. Did that once. My hip got out of joint. I walked with a limp. I'm not going to wrestle with God this time. This is God's plan. This is God's invincible will. This is God's sovereign plan. I'm not messing with it. So at the end of his life, he's a transformed man, and he surrenders to God's sovereignty. And what he does is he switches the order. He's a man who has been transformed by sovereign grace. He's a man who's been changed. Notice what he says in verse 15. I think it's almost the very first time in the Scriptures where Jacob actually refers to my God. What did he say before? Your God. Your God. Your God. It's your God. What does he say in verse 15? The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day. What is Jacob saying? When I was back running my hellbound race as a deceiver, as a con man, even back then, God was my shepherd. 
God was at work. God was doing a work to draw me to himself. God was going to bring a work to bring me to this transformation. And I'm at the point now where I'm at because God has been my shepherd my whole life. I may not have realized it back then, but God has been orchestrating events to be my shepherd. Now, how many of you have had the same thing happen to you? Back when, before you were even a Christian, before you were saved, you look back now over your life and realize that God's hand was there all along guiding you to himself. God was drawing you to himself. God was working. God was bringing people into your life to pray for you. God was bringing people into your life to witness to you. God was orchestrating events to bring you to that point of transformation. And you can look back over your life and say, I look back now and realize that God has been at work. Dawn often reminds me of this in her life. You see, my wife Dawn was raised in a non-Christian home. Her father is still not a believer. Her mom at that time, they went to a a Roman Catholic church, weren't really learning the Bible, and then by God's grace, they started going to a Baptist church. And they started hearing the gospel. And it wasn't until Dawn was 15 years old at a Billy Graham crusade when she finally trusted Christ for salvation. But if you talk to Dawn, she'll tell you that she looks back over those, those years when she was a little girl, and she knew God was at work. God had his hand upon her. God was bringing her to the point of salvation. And there may be many of you in this room that can look back and say, even back when I was just a really rebellious sinner, God was doing some things to bring me to the point of transformation. He comes to the end of his life as a transformed man. And what does it say he does? We find out that that Jacob says, Joseph, promise me something. I don't want to be buried in Egypt. Egypt is not the promised land. I want to be buried back where my dad and my grandpa are, Isaac and Abraham. So promise me I'll be buried back in the promised land. And then what does the writer of Hebrews says? He says he bows his head over his staff and he worships. Now a staff in that culture was a symbol of being a pilgrim, being a sojourner, being a traveler, being a resident alien. Did Jacob ever live in one place? Remember, these guys are sojourners. They're travelers. They're aliens. And at the end of his life, what does he do? He takes that image of of being a, a resident alien. He bows over his staff and he worships God. And what he's basically saying is, I'm looking for the better country. I know that my home is not here on earth. I know that my home is in heaven. I'm longing for the better country, the place whose architect and maker is God. I'm going to worship God. Jacob comes to the end of his life and realizes, as an old man, nothing I have is from my own hands. I'm where I'm at today because it's simply by God's grace. And many of us in this room can say, I'm where I am today and it's simply by God's grace because he transformed me. He saved me. He comes to his end of his life And he realizes that he's been a transforming. And notice what he's doing. He's resting in that grace. He bowed his head in worship. He's resting in that grace. He's not trusting in himself. He's not trusting in his good works. He's not being a manipulator anymore. He's not being a deceiver anymore. He's not being a heel grabber anymore. He's not trying hard to somehow earn God's approval. He gets to the end of his life and realizes that all I can do is just rest in this grace. I can just lean upon God's grace. I have nothing to bring to the equation. As a matter of fact, Paul says this about our salvation in Romans chapter 4. Now, to the one who works, his wages are counted not as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but trusts or believes him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. It's not working for your salvation that gets you right with God. It's trusting in Jesus. So let me ask you a question this morning. 
Have you been transformed? Have you been transformed? Has this happened to you? Is there a point in your life where God has come and he's reached down and he's pulled you out of your pit of sin and he set you upon his rock and God has changed you in an instant and God has changed your name? God has changed your name from being a sinner to being a Christian. God has taken out your heart of stone and replaced it with the heart of flesh. God has caused you to be born again. God has opened your eyes to the beauty of Jesus. Has there come a point in your life this morning where you can say, I've been transformed by God's grace and it's only by God's grace. Has this happen to you? Are you a transformed person? Are you resting in God's grace? Are you transformed? Have you been changed by God and his grace? That's Jacob. Jacob, true faith is evidenced by a transformed life that rests in God's grace. Now let's turn our attention to Joseph. Let's go back to Hebrews chapter 11 verse 22. And you may wonder, what in the world does this verse mean? And after, when I first read it, I felt the same way until I started doing some study and going back and reading the Old Testament and, and just kind of looking through some things. Verse 22. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, okay, so it's at the end of Joseph's life, it's, he's nearing the end, it's right before he's dying. He made mention, two things here. He made mention of the exodus of the Israelites, and number two, gave directions concerning his bones. Okay. Now, of all the things that you would want to focus on about Joseph, why these two things? I mean, Joseph is an amazing story. Go back and read Genesis. Almost all the attention is given to Joseph. He was sold into slavery at the age of 17. He was um, imprisoned unjustly for many years. He escaped sexual temptation with Potiphar's wife. He was, he was given the number two position in the land. His brothers come back and there's this amazing forgiveness that, that he extends. And, and then the writer says here that he talked about the exodus and he talked about his bones. Okay. So here's point number two. Authentic faith does not compromise. Does not compromise in the face of the temptations of power, prosperity, and popularity. Authentic faith does not compromise. And if there is a man in the Bible that did not compromise, it was Joseph, maybe next to Daniel. Daniel and Joseph are probably two men that you look at that did not compromise. And we see it in two events. First of all, he makes mention of the Exodus. Now, this is amazing. Joseph makes mention of the Exodus. Now, let me just ask you a real... uh, Kids, if you're in here, what book of the Bible comes after Genesis? Exodus. So when Joseph is living, has the exodus happened yet? No. Was Joseph a prophet? Was Joseph a dreamer? Did God somehow miraculously come to Joseph and say, there's going to be the exodus? Now we know Joseph was a dreamer, and we know that God gave him visions and dreams, but all we have to do is go back and say, what did God tell your great-grandfather Abraham? God gave a promise. God gave something to Abraham that I'm sure Joseph knew. So let's go back into Genesis chapter 15. And let's see what God told Abraham, his great-grandfather. Because in in, in Joseph's life, the exodus was not going to happen for another 150 years. 150 years in the future would be what we call the exodus. Now, what's the exodus? We'll look at this in a couple weeks. It's the parting of the Red Sea. It's the plagues. It's the Ten Commandments movie. It's, you know, leaving. That's what exodus means. It's the leaving of Egypt to cross the Red Sea into the Promised Land. And what does God tell Abraham? Genesis 15. Verse 13. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, Egypt, 
and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. Now, how long were the Israelites in Egypt? 400 years. As for you, oh, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. What was the judgment? Ten plagues. Afterwards, they shall come out with great possessions. What do we know about the Exodus? They came out of the Red Sea with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Okay, God puts Abraham in this deep sleep. While Abraham's asleep, God says to him in a dream, your people are going to be in Egyptian slavery for 400 years. And after that, there's going to be a judgment upon Egypt and you're going to flee. You're going to escape. You're going to leave with great possessions. Now, what does God give Abraham in that dream? The Exodus. And Joseph would have known that. Joseph would have known that. Now, let's go to Genesis at the very end of Genesis. Go to Genesis chapter 50. Go to the very end of the book. So Joseph made mention of the Exodus. I want to be part of the Exodus. Hadn't happened yet, but Joseph talks about the Exodus. Now, the second thing he says is, do something with my bones. Okay. This is where we find the whole bone issue. Genesis 50, verse 24 Through the end of the Bible. I mean, not the end of the Bible, the end of Genesis. Yeah, we're going to read the whole Bible, the end of it. Okay, you ready? Genesis through Revelation. No, we're not going to do that. Genesis 50, 24 through 26. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and will bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob. Where are they? They're in Egypt. Joseph says, God's going to bring you out. There's going to be an exodus. Verse 25, then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Okay? Bones. Now, you may ask yourself, what's the big deal here? Okay, Joseph says, Exodus gives instructions about his bones. We were looking at this, scratching our heads like, what in the world is he talking about? This is strange. It seems sentimental. But we need to remember something about Joseph. Who is Joseph? The number two guy in Egypt. He's the prime minister under Pharaoh. So Joseph is a man of what? Ultimate power, ultimate prosperity, ultimate popularity. For 80 years, Joseph lived in Egypt. He was very wealthy. As a matter of fact, he had everything that Egypt had at his disposal. Was he lacking in power? No, he was number two in command. Was he lacking in prosperity? No, he had all the riches he needed. Was he lacking in popularity? No, he was a very popular leader. But he wanted wanted to, at the moment of his death, not be associated with Egypt, but with what? The promised land. The exodus. He wants to be part of the exodus. Don't bury me here in Egypt. Take my bones. And he, an amazing thing is he says, take my bones after the exodus. After the exodus. Now remember, Joseph is a faith that does not compromise. What do we see about Joseph's faith that he does not compromise? At 17 years old, he's sold into slavery. Snatched out of the hands of his family at the treachery of his brothers. And he goes and lives in a pagan land of idolatry in Egypt. Now, those of you that are 15, 16, 17, 18 years old, how would you like it if you were snatched out of your family, gone to sin in a Muslim country all by yourself, no friends, no family, no, no, no Christian support system, no Christian friends. You were in a Muslim country all by yourself as a 17-year-old. How long would you survive? 
how long would you last? How long would it be before you compromised and just said, you know what, I have no support system, I'm just going to give up. It's too hard. But what does Joseph do? If you read the story of Joseph, he does not compromise. There comes a moment where Potiphar comes up to him and says, I see you're handsome and well-built, Joseph. Let's have some fun and, 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 and that, we'll have a roll in the hay. Joseph flees in the face of temptation as a young man. And if you look in the book of Genesis over and over again, it says that God was with Joseph. God was with Joseph. God was with him. You see, in a pagan world of idolatry, he had everything at his disposal. Power, he had it. Popularity, he had it. Prosperity, he had it. But at the day of his death, he said, I don't want any of that. What I want to be identified with is the people of God and the Exodus. Think about how Egyptian pharaohs were buried. You guys seen the History Channel, King Tut? You've seen those Discovery Channel things that King Tut exhibit is going on right now. Egyptian royalty were, were in these huge tombs where they put all this jewelry, all these gold, all, all, all these riches, and it was this huge... Your, your, your burial as an Egyptian pharaoh was a monument to power, prosperity, and popularity. And Joseph could have said, I demand a burial like that. Put all the riches in there. I want to be buried like an Egyptian pharaoh. He had every right to do that. But what does it say? He was just buried in a little coffin. He didn't care about the Pharaoh. He didn't care about all the trappings. He wanted to go where? To the promised land. His heart was not in Egypt. His heart was where God wanted him to be. Before he finished high school, he was a multimillionaire. Anybody ever heard of the Borden Dairy Company? Let me drink the Borden milk. In 1904, William Borden graduated from high school as a multimillionaire. As a gift, his parents sent him across the world on a cruise. And while on a cruise after graduating from high school, he begins to see the plight of people without Christ. He sees the poverty, and God puts upon his heart to be a missionary. And God calls him to be a missionary. And he writes back to his folks and says, God is calling me to be a missionary. And he thinks his family's going to be so excited. And know what they say? You can't be a missionary. You're our brightest son. You're poised to take over the family business. You're poised to inherit millions of dollars. You can't be a missionary. You've got to come home. You've got to run the dairy business. You cannot do this. Well, he came home and he went to Yale University. And later on, he went to seminary. And while in seminary, he renounced all of his wealth. He gave away all of his inheritance. And he wrote these words in his Bible. On the flyleaf of his Bible, he wrote these words, No reserves. And in time, God put a passion for William to go to China. He had a heart for an unreached people group among the Muslims in China. And so he finally is going to, 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 to get his dream to go be a missionary. So he gets on a boat. And a day before he gets on the boat to sail for China, his dad is very, very ill, about to die. And his family says, don't go be a missionary. Come back and run the family business. Of all times to go be a missionary, this is not the time, William. God is not calling you to be a missionary. We are calling you to come back and run the family business. And he goes anyway to China. And the second word he writes in his Bible under no reserves is no retreat. And he's sailing to China and he stops in Egypt. And it's in Egypt that he contracts cerebral meningitis. He's very, very sick. After three weeks, he dies. Never going to China. Never being that missionary. And his family is getting ready for his funeral. They pull out his Bible. They turn to the flyleaf. And they see the words, no reserves. They see the word, no retreat. 
And finally, sometime before he died, there was one last entry. No regrets. You see, his desire for wealth, for prosperity, for popularity, for power, far outstripped his desire to go be a missionary. Now think about what's amazing about Joseph here. He doesn't want to go back to the promised land. I mean, he doesn't want to go back to Egypt. He wants to go to the promised land. And they put his bones in a coffin. And they carry these bones around in a coffin. Now think about the daily reminder it would be for the children of Israel. These are Joseph's bones. He could have been buried as a Pharaoh, but we're carrying them around with us. And and we're not supposed to take these with us until we leave during the Exodus. And the people are probably thinking, what in the world is the Exodus? We're under Egyptian bondage. We're under slavery. But one day, God has promised one day we will be freed. And so the reminder of Joseph in that coffin was that one day God is going to get us out of here. So every day that they looked at those bones, they realized we're getting out of here. And so Joseph, in his death, he wasn't even thinking about himself. He's thinking about the legacy he's going to leave to that next generation. He knows that after he dies, his body is going to be an encouragement, a source of motivation, a source of inspiration for those that are in bondage to say, there is going to be redemption. There's going to be the exodus. He was very strong in his faith. If, If you look at the life of Joseph, he never once compromised. Even to his dying death, even after he's dead, he's a legacy. Now, what do we know happens to the bones of Joseph? Well, you have to go to Exodus. Exodus 13, what does Joseph say? Take my bones with you during the Exodus. Exodus 13, 19. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. For Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from there. Okay, so here's the picture. The exodus, the plagues, the crossing of the Red Sea. And Moses is probably thinking, I've got to take the bones, got to take the bones, can't forget the bones. So Moses takes the bones because that was what was promised. So they're carrying Joseph's bones out in a coffin. Now, what would you think would happen next? We've crossed the Red Sea. We're in the promised land, sort of. We're in the wilderness. Do you think they buried Joseph then? You have to wait many, many years later. Okay, Moses is dead. Moses is dead. Who's the new leader? Joshua. What is Joshua charged with? Joshua, you go into the promised land. You cross the Jordan River. You conquer the promised land. You allot the tribes their their allotment. And so it's not until the very end of the book of Joshua, after the conquest, after the taking of the promised land, after the occupation, that they finally do what? Bury Joseph's bones. So if you have to go to Joshua 24, verse 32, the very last words of Joshua. As for the bones of Joseph, which the people of Israel brought up from Egypt, they buried them at Shechem in the piece of land that Jacob bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for a hundred pieces of money. It became an inheritance of the descendants of Joseph. What a legacy. It wasn't until after they were in the land that finally his bones were at rest. So what's authentic faith? We see from Jacob one thing. From Jacob, it's a life that's transformed by God's grace. And for Joseph, it's a life that does not compromise in the face of power, prosperity, and popularity. You need more than an example like Jacob and Joseph. I I can sit here and say, be like Jacob, be transformed. Be like Joseph and don't compromise. But you need more than an example. You need a savior. Think about Joseph for a moment. What happened with Joseph? Like Joseph who was forced out of his father's house 
At the hands of treachery of his brothers, he was sold into slavery by being forced out of his father's house. What did Jesus do? Jesus voluntarily left his father's house, came to earth, and experienced the treachery of people that would take him and nail him to a cross. Like Joseph, who through suffering, through hardship, through prison, was finally exalted to the second place in Egypt. Jesus came to earth and through suffering and through the cross and through his death was what? Finally raised again and he experienced exaltation at the right hand of the Father. And like Joseph, who at the end of his life stretched out his hands to his brothers and embraced them. And and, and if you go back and read Joseph, he wept uncontrollably when he finally forgave his brothers. And he wrapped his arms around his brothers and said, I forgive you. What did Jesus do? He didn't just wrap his arms around us. He stretched his arms out upon that cross. And what were some of the last words of Jesus on that cross? Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they are doing. You see, we're all like the wicked brothers that sold Joseph into slavery. We're all like Jacob who are deceivers. We all do not deserve God's grace. We don't deserve God's love. But Jesus on the cross in our place stretches his arms out and says, I'm going to receive you. I'm going to forgive you simply because I love you. So let me ask it again. Has this happened to you? Has this happened to you? Have you in a moment of time been transformed by the power of Jesus Christ by simply trusting in him for salvation? And I would just say this, what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? Look away, look away from the power, the prosperity, and the popularity that this world has to offer. Look away from that. And as the writer of Hebrews tells us, turn your eyes towards Jesus, who's more valuable, who's more wonderful, who's more lovely, who's more glorious, who is your Savior, and receive this Jesus Christ who alone can bring you into a right relationship with the Father. And the promise is, if you trust in Jesus Christ, in a moment you will be transformed by God's grace. All your sins will be forgiven, you will have a home in heaven, and God will accept you as his child. Look to Jesus. Let me ask you to bow your heads for just a moment. Maybe there's one of these three things that's really got your grip this morning. Maybe you're influenced by prosperity. Maybe you're influenced by popularity. You just want to be popular. Or maybe you want power. Whatever sin you're holding on to this morning, realize that none of that, none of that compares to the glory of who Jesus is. So I'm just going to ask you in the quietness of this moment just to spend a few minutes Asking two questions. One, are you transformed? Can you say, I've been transformed by God's grace the way Jacob was? And number two, if you have been transformed, is your life marked by a life that doesn't compromise? Are you not compromising? I'm thinking specifically of high school students and college students that are faced with these things. Are you those that don't compromise? Adults, are we those that don't compromise? but we stand strong because we believe that Jesus is far greater than anything this world has to offer. Spend just a few moments in silent prayer asking the Lord to search your heart and go before him in worship this morning.